in essence, corn prices have fallen, but it's it's hard to say that they aren't still elevated. And that's just due to so many different factors that have come into play. We've had severe droughts, uh, war in Europe, supply chain chaos, and it's just going to take a while to unwind all that. Even if we saw a serious slowdown in growth that would ease some of the demand side pressures, people still eat in a recession. People still use gasoline. Uh, it seems like supply side continues to be the real driver of what we're seeing in corn markets. You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. The following podcast contains options-related material. Prior to listening to today's podcast, all listeners should read and familiarize themselves with the characteristics and risks of standardized options, or ODD, which may be accessed through the link found in the show's notes or podcast description page. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Hello, and welcome to IBKR Podcasts. I'm Stephen Levine, Senior Market Analyst at Interactive Brokers. I'm your host for today's program. Sean McGovern's back with us for our ongoing series on agricultural commodities. He's Vice President of Research at McElinden Research Partners. They're a terrific independent investment strategy group that focuses on identifying alpha-generating investment themes, and they have a lot of commentary on our Traders Insight platform. So it's great to have you back with us, Sean. Thanks, Stephen. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you, Jeff. Praiseman, Jeff Praiseman, IBKR Senior Trading Education Specialist. He's also here with us. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing great, Steve. Thanks for having me. And it's uh, great to see you again, Sean. Same to you. Same to you. All great. All great. All great. Jeff's going to be on our Trader Workstation platform and it's going to be using our tools and his own research to help us out on uh, how corn futures and certain companies and stocks in the ecosystem of corn-related products are doing. Uh, it's a rather large field of players, right? So we're going to try and narrow the scope a bit on that and focus on some of those companies whose products are produced with the corn futures that are trading on the exchange. So for this discussion, I thought we'd change things up a bit from our previous podcasts. We talked about coffee and wheat futures. Those were podcasts called Time for a Coffee Break and the War on Wheat, which uh, if you haven't already, Sean's given us some great insights on both of those. Uh, they're now streaming on IBKR Podcasts and Spotify and Apple Music and wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I thought we'd just dive right in uh, on this topic. So, okay, as I understand it, corn's used for a wide variety of purposes. It's in several different business sectors. Got a huge involvement, obviously, with consumer staples, but also industrials and energy and pharma, uh, from corn sweeteners and foods like high fructose corn syrup to biofuels like ethanol to uh, all sorts of different industrial uses. And I had no idea that corn was involved in, in say, the production of envelopes and sandpaper and batteries. We're not going to be focusing too much on that, but I thought that was really interesting. It also uh, is involved in producing drugs like antibiotics. First, Sean, what are we trading on the exchange when we trade in corn futures? And uh, you know, what kind of products are these mainly used to produce? Right. Well, the contract we're talking about when we refer to the corn futures, it's going to be the CME Group's contract. Now, the name of the contract is typically quoted as CBOT or, or CBOT. You'll usually hear people say that's for the Chicago Board of Trade, but CBOT actually merged with CME back in 2007. So essentially, CBOT is now just one of the four exchanges under the CME Group. 
the corn's going to be priced in bushels and have delivery uh, five delivery months throughout the year. It's going to be September, December, March, May, and July. Corn futures are the most liquid and active market in agricultural commodities, and that's not only because corn is so widely used in uh, human cereals and other foodstuffs. It's also a major component in animal feed. That's overlooked sometimes, but it's really critical because it's it's going to impact the prices we see for beef, chicken, pork, all the meat at the grocery store that isn't grass-fed. If higher costs are going into feeding the livestock, there's probably going to be a need to raise the final prices of the meat coming out of those animals. Uh, USDA's data, that that shows about 40% of the domestic corn usage in the country is going toward feeding the livestock over here. And one more thing is biofuels, particularly ethanol. You probably see that at the gas station. They'll usually say like 10% ethanol or something on the uh, on the gauges. And that's, that's going to make up another significant uh, portion of corn demand because that's mixed in with gasoline, air quality regulations, or renewable renewable fuel standards, that's going to uh, require about 10% of ethanol to be used in almost all of the gas in the United States. Are the corn futures prices reflective of perhaps producer prices or- Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I follow uh, the, the producer price indexes and I discovered one recently that was kind of interesting when I was I heard that we were going to be doing this topic, and it's a series specifically for corn sweeteners. And so that's going to be uh, anything corn syrup, sugar, oil, anything produced uh, from wet milling of corn. That index showed a year-over-year increase of 27.4% in February, huh. and that was almost a 29-year high and suggests we could see a whole lot of inflation still in the pipeline for like soda, candies, anything yeah. incorporating corn-based sweeteners. Yeah, we'll be, we'll be getting to that a bit later, but I have also noticed uh, high fructose corn syrup, corn sweeteners. Yeah, just off the charts. I mean, the Fed's got some indexes that I'm, I've been looking at uh, and soda, soda bottles, uh, two liter soda, uh, just just through the roof, it, it seems. It's, it's incredible. But Jeff, Jeff, can you tell us where are these corn futures trading now on a continuous contract on, on TWS? Yeah, sure. So right now they're trading around 650. And year to date, they're down about 4% or so, given the high was kind of mid early January, a little bit north of 680. But if you take the trailing 12 months, it's down about 15%. And back in May 2022, they were a little bit north of 800. And if you take it a little bit further back for the last five years, it's actually up 63%. But with that being said, they, they seem to hover around 400 for quite a while between 2018 and, and mid-2020 before they really started exploding at the end of 2020 and beginning of 2021 going north of 700 and then in the beginning of 2022, going north of 800 for a little bit. Yeah, I've seen them plateau for a little while. They look like they're headed a bit south at this point. But I mean, overall, compared to that 2020 low, prices have been really elevated on corn, it seems, to the extent it's different than wheat, for example. I mean, corn prices still seem to be hovering fairly high. I understand there have been some bans on corn exports. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. There was a World Bank report from March. These bans covered uh, a little over 5% of shipments, counted for more than uh, three quarters of over 15% increase in corn prices. So, Sean, what can you tell us about these bans? I mean, I know Russia had a, also a ban on, on, on wheat in the first half of 2022, but are these bans affecting, say, the prices for corn futures? Are they affecting everyday prices for consumers, producers? You know, what, what, can, you, what can you tell us about this? Yeah, there's been several countries enacting export bans for all kinds of food supplies over the last year. That's going to include uh, corn and other grains. We've seen all kinds of bans in 
India, Serbia, Egypt, countries in many different regions around the world. Uh, the bans are coming out of an understandable need to, to shore up the food supplies in their own countries, but that ends up driving food inflation in other places. At this point, most of the countries with restrictions still in place are typically smaller exporters of crops, and they're coming up short because of the large exporters like Russia and Ukraine not getting their usual share of supplies out to the world. So it's kind of a domino effect. Uh, when it comes to corn specifically, we're seeing or uh, monitoring ongoing bans in Russia, which just enacted a partial ban on grain exports last month. And that will continue uh, through at least June 30th. We talked in February about the war on wheat, yeah. uh, the uh, war on the wheat supply that has continued on since the start of the war in Ukraine, similar to wheat. Uh, Russia and Ukraine also export a significant amount of corn supplies to the world. And that's going to be wrapped up in that Black Sea, uh, Black sea grain deals that we've talked about. The deal ended up being extended in March, but only for 60 days, as opposed to the 120-day extension that Ukraine and the other partners in the agreement were seeking. That sort of lines up with our expectation that Russia is like quiet quitting on the deal, as you might say. That's They're not leaving outright, at least not yet, but also not fully holding up their end of the bargain. That looming uncertainty around the deal, which seems pretty tenuous at this point, is going to create risk in wheat and corn markets uh, going forward. And just to talk a little bit more uh, about the prices Jeff was just quoting a little bit earlier is, yeah, yeah cursory look at corn prices going back to this time uh, around last year or so, that would show corn prices have fallen significantly down from the 750, 780 area to around 650 or so today. But yeah, if you extend, extend your view out a little bit further around three years or almost any time from 2015 to 2020, you see that corn is still elevated well above those levels, which range between three to 450 a bushel. In essence, corn prices have fallen, but it's it's hard to say that they aren't still elevated. And that's just due to so many different factors that have come into play. We've had severe droughts, uh, war in Europe, supply chain chaos, and it's just going to take a while to unwind all that. Even if we saw a serious slowdown in growth that would ease some of the demand side pressures, people still eat in a recession. People still use gasoline. Uh, it seems like supply side continues to be the real driver of what we're seeing in corn markets. I understand China's got some potential increase uh, in demand or healthier demand. Uh, I know they had an uptick in purchases of U.S. corn, for example, pretty recently. But so the U.S. is, I understand from the USDA anyway, is, is the world's largest producer, consumer, and exporter of corn. So what can you tell us about our own domestic production? How much of it stays within our borders? How much of it leaves our borders? And what kind of challenges do you think? I mean, I understand there are some other countries that have come into the competition fray. Brazil, Argentina, and Argentina's perhaps uh, experiencing some challenges with their weather there. I think that the Buenos Aires Grain Exchange had cut its outlook on Argentina. But what do you, what do you think um, in terms of uh, exports for the U.S.? Is it becoming more and more uncertain or, or what do you think? Well, the U.S. is a huge consumer of corn, and a lot of that stays here because we produce a lot, too. Uh, up to a fifth of that is going to go out to the world, though. And that's a relatively small share, but for something like 2021 to 2022, that was still north of 62 million metric tons. Uh, and that's enough to make the U.S. the top exporter of corn for now. So, yeah, plenty of corn we're making, but a lot of it, um, the small share that's going out is still a huge, huge amount. And you know, I'm glad you mentioned South America. Uh, you mentioned Argentina, but Brazil is is one of the big places that we're watching. And we've been monitoring it closely since it's right on the U.S.'s tail to take the crown for corn exports this year. Oh, really? uh, well, they 
they could surpass us this year. Sometime within the next decade, that's probably going to happen. But the latest USDA numbers expect Brazil to achieve a second consecutive year of record corn shipments. Uh, and that's going to be about 50 million metric tons uh, to all different destinations around the world. That's like a seven-fold increase over the fa- past 15 years. The U.S. is only going to do about 47 million metric tons of corn uh, this year. And you can tell that's a significant drop-off from what we saw in the 2021 to 2022 period. Why is Brazil surpassing us and why are we producing less? Well, that's all, that's a great question. So the University of Illinois has great data on this. And the acreage in Brazil has actually risen 72% over the last 20 years. That's just the acreage for corn. In the U.S., you've really only seen about 12% growth. And, and going out to 2031, the USDA says Brazil might have up to 49 million acres of land it can still use to expand its crop production over that period. So they're going to catch us. It's really just a matter of time. And you also mentioned China. That's the engine behind the growth. Uh, they are taking in massive amounts of Brazilian corn these days. And we'd probably be expecting uh, Argentina, like you mentioned, to be joining in on this. But they have had the problems with their weather. And the exports out of Argentina are probably going to be 28 or 29 million tons in this marketing year. That's If that does come true, that'll be the lowest since 2017 to 2018. Uh, we're watching the weather right now um, in, in Brazil specifically since their exports slowed down pretty significantly in March. Uh, that some warm weather came in, warm and dry weather. And while that's not ideal for corn crops that are already in the ground, they're delayed. They had a lot of delayed plantings this year. What you have to understand about Brazil is they have they plant corn all year round and they have three different harvests. And right now they're in the second. It's uh, the second harvest is called safrinha. And that just means uh, off season, but really it's just the second harvest. And they sow that in fields where soybeans have already been harvested, which is why it's the second season. And th- it was really late this year. It's actually the biggest uh, driver of Brazil's crops. So I think it's up to 70 to 75 percent of uh, national production comes out of the safrinha. Uh, The issue is, like I said, it's time sensitive. And if you plant it too late, which seems to be what happened this year, uh, it can be exposed to frost and other bad weather that can that can really mess up corn. Going into um, April, which is kind of the wet the wet month. For, for the for this corn in the Midwestern part of Brazil, uh, we're going to be watching that. And that precipitation could have a really big outsized role in determining the trajectory of corn futures in the year ahead, because Brazil is just such a huge producer uh, right what now. What does Wasti say about this? I mean, what, what does Wasti's outlook look like? Last month, uh, they did expect the U.S. exports to be lower. And that's actually what came out. Uh, and it was 75 million bushels less than uh, what most people were expecting. I don't want to talk too much about WASD because we actually won't get those oh. new numbers till tomorrow. But there's some other <laughs> USD. Yeah, right. Perfect timing, right? <laughs> but but there's some things you can watch for. That's what I was going to say is you can watch for some really specific things in this in this new WASD report. Uh, some of the USDA numbers outside of the WASD last week showed that corn stocks at the start of March were about 7.4 billion bushels. That's down 5% or about 180 million bushels from the same time a year ago. And we can continue to watch how the exports grow and how the production is, like what the plantings look like. But there was one other kind of series that you can also uh, glean something off of when it comes to WASD. And that was going back to China. We mentioned earlier that they're having this buying spree in Brazil. They've really been buying everywhere. And it's not just corn. In fact, they've been stocking up for some time. And and WASD has some numbers on this. 
So right now, China's holding about 70% of the world's total excess corn, more than half of the excess global wheat, and around a third of the global soybeans. Well, what that China likes to buy when, when they see that they're getting a deal, that things look relatively cheap. And if they're buying right now, that could mean their government sees prices potentially going up in, in the near future, and they're trying to vacuum up whatever they can get right now so while things are staying cheap. In, in a way. That's very interesting. Exactly. Um, and I, we touched upon this earlier. Corn is involved in a lot of different business sectors, a lot of different areas, a lot of different areas of production. But corn sweeteners, you know, because we, we're sticking with our focus on food products and food inflation. And we, we touched on this earlier. High fructose corn syrup. Okay, so I, I noticed this. And that's a huge ingredient in a, in a lot of different kinds of food. If we look at breakfast foods, for example, it's a huge ingredient in lots of uh, types of jam or maple syrup certain juices that are supposed to be fruit juices, but, you know, they, they pass as fruit juices, I suppose, but also in, in soft drinks and in soda. And I see high fructose corn syrup up from, let's say, just last year, it's, it's like over 40, about 45 and a half percent higher in price. Uh, I mean, it's crazy expensive these days, it seems. So, I mean, I guess I throw this question out there now to everybody, you know, whether or not you're buying anything with high fructose corn syrup and have noticed any kind of price differences from last year. I don't eat anything with sugar. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> I'll throw that out uh, to, to y'all. Well, I'm glad you took the opportunity to tell us just how great your uh, your diet choices are, Stephen. You know, you're the healthiest one here, as we know. Every well, episode, we find it's, out something it's a new about uh, how healthy degree, Stephen is. Uh, uh, reversal from the way it used to be, because all during the pandemic, I could tell you whether or not I was spending more on M and M's or Lucky Charms, uh, and there's other product placement uh, that doesn't belong here. But I so I did drink uh, and eat a lot of. Uh, sugary things, and I gained a lot of weight. And so, you know, I had to do something about that. So I, I am not eating any sugar anymore. That's it. No more. There could be uh, obviously, you know, natural sugars and pineapple, et cetera. But uh, anyway, I'm leaving it to you guys. You've just you've just got <laughs> just sprouted grain bread, sprouted grain bread, and uh, and no I'm, corn syrup. I'm Sounds good. To, you know, to the dietary uh, guidance in in my mind. You know, from my days in elementary school. Anyway, please. <laughs> well, considering I've ate about 800 jelly beans over the last three days, I don't think I'm quite as healthy as Steve. The one thing I have noticed, though, is I don't know whether or not the prices have risen or not for, say, soda. But the one thing I really noticed at the supermarket is it seemed like in the past, every time you went, there was a sale on soda. So it was buy, you know, one two liter, get the other one for 50% off or buy a 12 pack of say Coca-Cola and get the second one for 50% off. At least from what I'm observing, it seems like there's less and less of those sales going on in this in that aisle. So whether or not they're raising prices directly or they're just not discounting anymore, it seems like certainly overall, it's more expensive to eat unhealthy. Yeah, see? So not only is it bad for you, but you're also spending more money on that. That's not right. Okay, what, what, do, you, what do you think, Sean? Yeah, as I mentioned at the top, I was I was really shocked by the the, the producer price increases in the um, uh, the corn syrup. Anything that's coming from from corn is just is going to be up. And uh, especially if you look at that over a period of just more than just year over year, if you look at two years or three years, you know, it might be 
slowing down a little bit now because we have seen some disinflation in the economy. Now, not seeing really any any deflation by any means, but I would expect that corn syrup or anything that it goes into is going to follow the broader trend of food inflation, which we've seen has been persistently uh, resilient. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting. The St. Louis Fed has a price chart of two liter soft drinks. It shows a spike of over 38% in February from uh, the prior year. And if you look at the latest earnings, you know, from say Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, there's still a lot of demand, it seems, even though these prices for these products uh, have been rising. Coke had an organic revenue growth of 15% in the fourth quarter. Full year was up 16%. Uh, and so I'm sure these higher commodity costs, uh, other factors, I'm sure, are eating into its margins, impacting its cash flow. But, you know, Pepsi is, is pretty much mirroring that same activity. And we mentioned this also because Coca-Cola does have its first quarter earnings coming out on April 24th. PepsiCo on the 25th, uh, also Carrick Dr. Pepper on the 27th. So this is very timely in terms of that kind of discussion. What are you seeing, Jeff? Uh, I mean, these stock prices, I think, and some of these soft drink companies are also mirroring their activity, I think. Yeah, Steve. So the one thing I noticed, and to kind of narrow it down again, because, you know, corn isn't everything, but just looking at the beverage companies, Coca-Cola, uh, Keurig, Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, you know, looking at the call and put volume, overwhelmingly, the majority of volume in contracts as well as notional value is on the call side of it. So in other words, more investors and traders are coming in and, and buying call options versus put options. Again, not just in contract size, but as, as well as the notional value of the contracts as well. So it seems to be signaling that people do believe that these companies will you know, continue to rise as far as the stock price. So, the, uh, Sean, do you, do you foresee perhaps these prices just continuing to rise? Or I know you talked about, you know, corn as being something that looks like it's got a lot of challenges in terms of supply chains, et cetera. But, but what, what, what do you think? Yeah, it's doubtful that we really see any relief for inflation in this stuff any more than we see gradual disinflation happening throughout the economy, which which we have seen. If you look at the various consumer price indices, uh, any any kind of gauges of inflation, we are seeing gradual disinflation. And you want to hit on that word specifically uh, because that's prices are still going up, but by less. Uh, that's not really getting us anywhere near levels of meaningful deflation. That's when prices are actually declining. As we've said, the demand side risks are certainly there with interest rates as high as they are and growth appearing to slow down. And now you also have consumer sentiment reversing course after getting on, back on track for several months. But right now, in the scope of corn products that, or any products that utilize corn, uh, the expectation from the USDA is that the US and the world at large will use more corn than it produces for the sixth consecutive year. And that's going to keep markets tight. In the scope of stocks, I, I don't have any color on any specific stocks, but I am remembering something from when we talked about coffee that all of these brands, they compete with private label. Yeah. Every store, they have a Coke or a Pepsi kind of replacement. And because inflation has actually gone up for private labels so strongly, that has pushed people back toward name brands because the kind of uh, benefit you're getting uh, you know, the difference in cost is actually starting to compress a little bit, and there's not as much benefit to buying a private label versus purchasing some kind of premium product. So if that's going away, that could help organic sales at these companies. Do you think they can move back to sugar-based products as opposed to this high fructose corn syrup? 
I wonder. Oh, they can. They can. Well, actually, it's interesting. This has kind of been going around on, on the Internet as, as, as a little bit of a uh, a trend is that if uh, for for Passover, Jewish people, they can't eat corn. Uh, so they have to have Coke, uh, Coca-Cola, that uses natural cane sugar. And, you know, most people didn't know about this until it became a big fad on the Internet, is that if you see Coca-Cola at the store, it has like a yellow cap. That means it's made with sugar cane and it's uh, kosher for Passover. It's very interesting. And I haven't looked at sugar futures, but I have a feeling that sugar, the production of, of uh, refinement of sugar is probably less than corn at this point. And I wonder, you know, it would be so much more cost effective perhaps to, I think it was the reverse when they first introduced high fructose corn syrup, that it at the time was probably less expensive to produce than sugar. But it looks like the roles have reversed a bit. Yeah. But I think the problem might come from scaling up cane sugar production as opposed to the cost of scaling up uh, corn syrup on sort of an international global level, because that's what Coca-Cola and Pepsi and these guys are doing. And I think that's probably more similar to or more driving what we're seeing with uh, with the popularity of uh, corn syrup. Very interesting stuff. So this was this was great on corn futures. Both of you, thank you so much uh, again for taking the time to do this. I want to let listeners know that you can read more commentary and market analysis at IBKR Traders Insight. It's on our newly launched IBKR campus at ibkrcampus.com. You can keep abreast there about topics we've discussed today. We've got a wide range of other news critical to your investment decisions. McElinden Research Partners has a host of articles on several themes from central banks and gold buying to issues involving cybersecurity. You can contact Rob Davis for more details at rob at macalindenresearch.com. And for a full list of financial educational offerings, visit the IBKR campus where, as always, all of our educational material is provided to the public at no cost. And until next time, I'm Stephen Levine with Interactive Brokers. Thanks for listening to IBKR Podcasts. As always, we have more episodes at ibkrpodcasts.com. And if you're interested in learning more about Interactive Brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education material, such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, financial and economic commentary at tradersinsight.news, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and if necessary, seek professional advice. Futures are not suitable for all investors. The amount you may lose may be greater than your initial investment. Before trading futures, please read the CFTC Risk Disclosure. A copy and additional information are available at ibkr.com. Options involve risk and are not suitable for all investors. For more information, read the Characteristics and Risks of Standardized Options, or ODD, which may be accessed through the link found in the show's notes or podcast description page. 